Broadcasting from Rancho Cucamonga, California, this is A History of California. Hello, and welcome back to the show. On this episode, we will continue our focus on those initial Spanish voyages to the California coast from the early 1540s to 1603, though this time we'll examine the consequences of those meetings, from immediate to long term, on the Californian indigenous peoples and the habitats they occupied. From there, we'll shift our attention down south, where Jesuit friars began the long procession of Catholic missions ever deeper into the faraway stretches of northwestern New Spain, eventually bringing themselves to the doorsteps of what would become the modern Californian state boundaries. As it turns out, though, the first contact we'll take a look at doesn't involve Spaniards at all, but rather their number one public enemy on the high seas, the Englishman and eventual Sir Francis Drake and his trusty vessel, the Golden Hind, which you'll recall Drake had to intentionally beach at some tantalizingly mysterious location around Point Reyes to repair, as the ship was bursting at the seams with Spanish loot. Though the precise location of his landing remains unknown, the precise date is known, June 17, 1579. For Drake and his Protestant Christian crew, this time of year just a few days out from the summer solstice mattered little on its own, except perhaps for the conveniently long hours of daylight provided to them as they mended their ship on the beach. But for the indigenous coast Miwok speakers, in whose territory Drake had careened the Golden Hind, mid-June was a most auspicious time of year for these pale-skinned strangers to arrive on their shores. This was the time of year for a number of important cultural gatherings and rituals for the coast Miwok and their Pomo-speaking neighbors often marking the first fruiting of what would hopefully be a bountiful harvest of food that would be gathered in the coming summer months. Two specific indigenous ceremonies conducted at this time were the Kuksu ritual and the ghost dance. The Kuksu ceremonies were widely practiced among many indigenous cultures in Northern California. The rituals involved a, quote, elaborate observance of dances and songs involving the impersonation of the kuksu and other spirits, with some dancers dressed in big head costumes performing curing rites for patients by blowing a double bone whistle over them or by prodding them with a long black staff, unquote. As for the ghost dance, that included, quote, another elaborate series of performances involving dancers, singers, and drummers, some of whom impersonated the spirits of the recently deceased in a mourning ceremony, unquote. And by the way, both of those quotes come from anthropology professors Kent Lightfoot and William Simmons, though in 1947, Robert Heiser became the first modern anthropologist to identify the kuksu and ghost dance traditions and how the coast Miwok approached and contacted Drake's crew in late June of 1579. At the outset, a single coast Miwok emissary made his way to Drake's beachside encampment 
and with no apparent violent intent on his part, was allowed to present Drake with a bundle of black feathers following a long speech in Coast Miwok. Eight days later, on the 26th of June, a procession of about 100 Coast Miwok men descended down from nearby hills upon Drake's camp, their bodies covered over in black and white paint and decorated with necklaces made of disc beads and net caps filled with feathers. Led by what Drake identified as a king bearing a plume of feathers and a four-foot-long black staff that Drake took to be his scepter. Over the course of Drake's 36-day-long repair job at Point Reyes, ritual songs and dances were performed by Coast Miwok men, while on every third day, Coast Miwok women would arrive as well to publicly wail and lacerate their cheeks and breasts with their own fingernails in an open and fierce display of grief and mourning. These intense outbursts of emotion occurring every 72 hours bewildered and ultimately upset the Englishmen so much that they implored the Coast Miwok to put a halt to them. Though natives afflicted with various injuries or diseases would continue to request that the English crew members either breathe on or make direct contact with the ailing parts of their body. This apparent healing rite is one of the cultural customs that Robert Heiser would later identify as a kuksu ritual. The open showings of grief by Coast Miwok women that so deeply freaked out the Anglos, Heiser took to be associated with the annual public mourning rites attached to the ghost dance ceremonies. A procession the size of 100 men likely signaled the concentration of people from many villages into a single ceremonial spot associated with both the kuksu and ghost dance rituals, as is the application of black and white body paint. Upon Drake's departure with his newly patched up Golden Hind in July, the Coast Miwok gifted, or as Drake saw it, crowned, the English captain with a feather bundle, clam disc beads stringed together in a necklace, and the long black staff Drake thought to be a scepter. Assuming that the Coast Miwok had gifted these objects as signs of submission to the English crown, Drake claimed his landing spot in the name of the English monarchy and dubbed the area Nova Albion. Considering the heavily ceremonial and spiritual context in which the Coast Miwok encountered Francis Drake's crew, specifically in an annual custom of ritual mourning, a common conclusion to arise is that the Coast Miwok regarded the English as deceased members of their villages returned back to life, or as supernatural beings, or as straight-up ghosts. Professors Lightfoot and Simmons offer an alternative take, that the Coast Miwok took the English as foreign, though still mortal, humans who had arrived with the specific intention of performing ceremonial roles for the kuksu and ghost dance rites and having performed them, they thus embarked and sailed away. For Drake's part, he assumed that these local natives were all under the control of Satan, and to the extent he could, he attempted to redirect the Coast Miwok's ritual attention towards Christian symbols like the cross. Having had absolutely no prior contact with each other's cultures beforehand, the Coast Miwok and Englishmen alike relied on exchanges of ceremony and rites, to help process the newly discovered existence of the foreigner, the stranger, the other. Though Drake made a claim on Point Reyes for the Queen of England, he had no real intention of staying there, 
as his main goal continued to be sailing around the globe and fleecing as many Spaniards as he could along the way. Those same Spaniards, however, did have every intention of permanently occupying what was still at that time fairly strenuous claims on vast lands within North and South America. And much like Drake's crew on the coast of Miwok, these Catholic Spanish colonizers also traded in ceremonies and rituals with the indigenous peoples they encountered at various points along the California coastline. Upon landing at shore, Spanish captains and their sailors would perform the requerimiento, a ceremony of possession which would supposedly communicate the intention of the Spaniards to stake a territorial claim at that spot. Last episode, we saw Juan Rodriguez Cabrillo act out the requerimiento on the beach at San Quentin in northern Baja, where he slashed some trees and moved boulders around as symbolic acts of domination over the newly made land claims. The requerimiento also included an oration by the leader of the expedition, in Spanish and or Latin, that would verbally declare the Spanish land claim to, like, anyone in earshot, I suppose? Though the immediate reactions of nearby indigenous folks to these strange happenings on the beach are not recorded, I imagine they ranged from confusion to amusement to wary concern and anything in between. Had the Kumeyaay or whatever indigenous ethno-linguistic group had been supplied with the universal translator from Star Trek and could thus understand what these bedraggled Spanish sailors were actually saying to them, though, I don't believe the response would have been friendly to these self-declared invaders. Spanish landings on the California coastline could last as few as two days. I may have exaggerated how little time Unamuno had to wander around Morro Bay before he was chased back to his ship, but if I did, I missed it by a day. However, if landings were to last any longer than that, the first thing to be constructed on the shoreline was usually some sort of rudimentary altar or structure for the performance of masses or other Catholic ceremonies. The Quirimiento was not merely a declaration of political domination by the Spanish crown, but also a declaration of religious domination by the Roman Catholic Church. And even on these initial points of contact between Spaniard and Native American, the objective of proselytization was forefront among Spanish colonizers. They performed masses, sometimes daily, in full and open view of any indigenous person who was curious enough to stay and observe this novelty. The Catholic religious calendar provided ample opportunity to hold feasts, commemorating a patron saint or major holidays like Christmas and Easter Sunday, and the more diplomatically astute of the Spaniards extended open invitations to these feasts to any nearby native villages, both in order to establish friendly relations and to leave a good impression of Catholic Christianity on the indigenous peoples the Spanish happens to encounter. Displays of cultural ritualism by both European colonizers and indigenous Californians colored many first contacts between the two groups, but more often than not, Spanish expeditionaries and the natives of the coastline focused on more worldly matters when they met face to face. That sort of direct communication usually began with both sides sending one or two individual emissaries to meet, either on land or at sea on board Spanish ships or indigenous watercraft, to exchange greetings in their own respective languages and sometimes provide small gifts. 
If initial diplomatic overtures went well, then more robust communication, material trade, and even invitations back to tour indigenous villages may have resulted. It should be kept in mind, however, that there being so many diverse tribelets and polities within multiple language families, Chumash and Ohlone being two of the largest, there was also a wide variety in the types of greetings the Spaniards received from the indigenous territories they were passing through. Some native folks were generous and friendly, and others were aggressively hostile to the colonial explorers. Nor is there any temporal pattern, wherein native reactions to contact with the expeditionaries became on average more or less friendly over time. That is to say, indigenous peoples on the California coast received the Spaniards in whatever way best fit with their specific values, sensibilities, and circumstances. Individual colonizers' reactions to the indigenous peoples they met could be just as scattershot, and white people were capable of giving widely diverging descriptions of the exact same group of indigenous people. Once communication was established, Spanish ship captains and their pilots attempted to extract whatever geographic knowledge they could from their indigenous hosts. Knowledge of the coastline's orientation and the location of potential dangers at sea were valuable for obvious reasons, but valuable as well were the locations of supply sites along the coast, where the expeditionaries could restock on water, food, and wood. The Chumash in particular boarded Spanish ships making their way through the Santa Barbara Channel to help the Spaniards navigate the strait and point out the names and locations of Chumash villages and encampments from their vantage point out at sea. Though the Spanish expeditions under Cabrillo and Vizcaino could glean some information of what lay ahead from these meetings, indigenous Californians were likely much more informed of the Spaniards' movements than the Spaniards themselves were aware of any indigenous movements. Trade networks linked indigenous groups from all over modern-day Southern California, Arizona, and New Mexico in the U.S., together with native cultures in Sonora and Baja California in Mexico. Modern-day interstates like the 10, the 40, and the 15 freeways all follow these ancient indigenous trade routes, and five centuries ago, they quickly conducted news of any Spanish expedition marching or sailing into the region. Acts of cruel violence perpetrated by men of the Coronado expedition a thousand miles inland had already reached the coast-dwelling Kumayai speakers by the time Cabrillo sailed into San Diego Harbor and attempted to make contact with them. Indeed, the Kumayai would have also heard from their southern neighbors that Cabrillo's ships were heading their way, thus adding to the information coming to them from the east of the violent conduct of Coronado's men. So when Cabrillo landed at Point Loma, he met Kumayai speakers who were informed beforehand of his coming and probably wary of the potential violence these invaders were capable of. They communicated these reservations directly to Cabrillo's men upon contact, by pantomiming riding a horse and mimicking killing native people with mounted lances. To counteract indigenous caution at the tendency of colonizers to bear arms, Spanish expeditionaries would often bear gifts instead. Aside from, you know, the ethical reasons for not slaughtering people upon first contact, there were also logistical reasons for giving gifts to local indigenous folks 
rather than immediately enslaving or killing them. As we've noted, indigenous inhabitants knew their land and could provide useful info to Spanish navigators. But for the extremely precarious existence of a 16th century Spanish sailor, gifts of fresh food from indigenous benefactors could be the difference between getting home or dying of scurvy and starvation at sea. For the economical Spanish expeditionary commander, there was no reason to sever this potential lifeline by preemptively harming the natives. Occasional skirmishes and acts of violence between Spanish colonizer and indigenous people still took place, but as policy, constant warfare would be unsustainable at this time. Consensual trade of material goods obviously benefited both parties better than exchanging arrows and gunpowder with each other. In analyzing five European expeditions that made contact with indigenous Californians between 1542 and 1603, Professors Lightfoot and Simmons quantified the goods that were traded between Spaniards and natives, as recorded in first-hand accounts of the voyages. Among all the trades of material resources that were documented in the historical record, 51% of the trades involved articles of clothing, 26% involved food, and 23% involved manufactured goods, such as glass beads. So in the immediate term, the consequences of contact between European colonizers and indigenous Californians were connected to exchange. Exchange of rituals and ceremony, exchanges of information, and exchanges of trade goods. But just because the Spaniards picked up anchor and sailed off beyond the horizon, that did not mean the consequences of early contact came to an end as well. Moving into a more medium-term time frame, say a decade or two post-contact, the possible introduction of plants, animals, fungi, and disease-inducing bacteria and viruses from the Old World could have impacted the indigenous Californian world centuries before Junipero Serra and the rest of the Franciscan missionaries arrived. One specific route of introduction for non-native plant species into California habitats was proposed by the ecologist Harold Heaty, who posited that the dumping of manure from European pack and food animals aboard Spanish ships near the shoreline could also deposit European seeds along the shore. If any of these seeds got lucky enough to germinate and grow, any number of migratory bird species flying along the Pacific shoreline could then spread that plant seeds all over the coast, giving the non-native plants plentiful opportunities to be spread into new habitats. One example of the accidental import of non-native species into California may be the bright pink flower-producing, low-lying succulent known as the California sea fig, a common sight on sandy beaches. California sea fig, evidently more closely related to populations in South Africa than any of its nearer cousins, probably arrived in the Golden State direct from Africa rather than taking a step-by-step -step expansion outward. If we're going with this hypothesis, then one suspect stands out in its culpability for the spread of the sea fig, the Manila galleons. Many of these vessels were constructed in Spanish ports and sailed southward around the African continent to reach the Philippines. Resupply points while rounding the Cape of Good Hope at Africa's southern end provided the ships with resources such as ballast, ballast being extra weight stored on board 
to sink the ship lower down into the waters, helping to prevent the entire thing from toppling over if winds push the sails in one direction too strongly. Ballast can consist of anything that adds weight, and so a commonly used material was beach sand, taken aboard while anchored or purposely grounded on shallow banks, precisely the kind of sandy soil favored by sea figs and so likely containing their seeds as well. The final step would require this seed-bearing sand to be dumped onto California beaches from within the Manila Galleon somehow, or more dramatically, spread all over a beach with bits and pieces of a galleon that had sunk or had been ripped apart by storms. Which, incidentally, is exactly what happened to Sebastian Rodriguez Cermeño's galleon after he dropped anchor at Point Reyes, not far from where the California sea fig was first documented by white botanists in the mid-1800s. I won't claim that this is the definitive story of how a particular collection of seeds came to be the California sea fig, but it's plausible enough to be included as a mid-term consequence of initial contact between European expeditionaries and what they saw as, quote, the New World. Another possible and far more devastating consequence of first contact was the spread of Old World diseases to human populations indigenous to this New World. Now, before continuing, I feel obligated to break the fourth wall here and tell the audience directly that I am writing this script in May of 2021, about 14 months out from the start of a global pandemic of a lung-attacking virus, COVID-19. Large-scale inoculation efforts through vaccines have been underway for about four months now here in the United States, though the virus continues to rampage in other nations. I include this break from the narrative here to make this point. An audience listening in 2021 is going to be much more intimately familiar with concepts like disease spread, incubation times, quarantine, and inoculation than even an audience listening in 2019 would have. Anyone who writes history is going to be inescapably influenced by the events swirling around them in their own time, and that influence will show in their work. So having said all that, Let's delve into the possibilities of past disease epidemics in the Americas, five centuries ago to be more precise, with the acknowledgement that, yeah, we're all currently dealing with another iteration of this same general problem. There is no doubt epidemics occurred in the Americas after European colonizers arrived, that the colonizers themselves were the ones bringing the diseases to the Americas from infected ports on the Mediterranean and North Atlantic shores, and that these epidemics killed millions of indigenous Americans. However, there are details to be filled in between and added on to each of those points, and in the late 20th century, a more developed narrative began to coalesce around the virgin soil thesis. This idea proposes that indigenous Americans, having had no prior contact with diseases that were endemic to Eurasia and Africa, were both physically and culturally defenseless against those newly arriving diseases, resulting in catastrophic epidemics that even spread ahead of European contact and documentation, like a cloud of radiation emanating out from a nuclear meltdown. Though the virgin soil thesis was versed solidified by historian Alfred Crosby in 1976, the concept grew out of previous scholarship by the anthropologist Henry Dobbins, 
who argued that pre-contact indigenous populations in the Americas were likely far larger than earlier estimated, and Dobbins specifically claimed that indigenous population loss in North America ran as high as 95% in the first 100 years after initial contact with the colonizers. One particularly devastating smallpox epidemic began in the year 1518, when a Spaniard arrived in the Caribbean after not just simply being exposed to the disease, but while still being contagious with it. The timing of this early smallpox epidemic coincided with Hernan Cortez's assault on Tenochtitlan, and indeed proved a crucial factor in defeating the Mexica coalition after they had been put under siege within their densely packed city, built upon a lagoon and surrounded on all sides by the deeper waters of Lake Texcoco. Smallpox killed thousands upon thousands of Mexica warriors and civilians inside besieged Tenochtitlan by the time Cortez and his allies victoriously rode in and proclaimed the establishment of the Kingdom of New Spain. While the 1518 smallpox epidemic's carnage was well documented in the Valley of Mexico, with first-hand accounts by both colonizer and indigenous chronicles, what the virgin soil thesis argues is that the epidemic also spread outward from Mexico to the rest of the continent, beyond direct observation by, and thus unknown to the conquistadors and their first-hand chroniclers. Also unobserved would be fatality rates that the virgin soil thesis would argue ran as high as 40 to 100% once infection spread to an indigenous village or encampment. Beginning around the year 2000, academics studying indigenous American history, culture, and demographics began more critical analyses of the virgin soil thesis. Rather than just assuming that Old World's diseases spread like wildfire once let loose on the continent, they studied how epidemics actually expanded through factors like timing, the vulnerability of indigenous communities, and their abilities to recover. With the factor of timing comes considerations of facts like incubation times of various diseases, and the window of time in which people who are inflicted with a disease have the ability to spread it to others and that window of time is not permanent. A colonizer soldier or sailor who lived long enough to arrive in the New World lived through a European childhood spent fighting off various diseases to which they would have eventually gained immunity. Otherwise, they simply did not reach adulthood. But having gained immunity through exposure to the disease as a child doesn't make you contagious with that disease as an adult. It is admittedly easy to imagine the very exhalations of the colonizers themselves as poisonous to indigenous lungs, but that is not how human immune systems work on any continent. With the factor of vulnerability comes considerations of things like population density and cultural or ritual responses to disease. The higher the population density, the higher the susceptibility to the so-called crowd diseases, such as smallpox, influenza, and measles. And thus, densely populated Mesoamerica was eviscerated by smallpox in 1518, among more epidemics to come. But again, you cannot rely on assuming this same circumstance 
would apply in every other densely populated area within North America, like what is now the southeast U.S. and the southern California coastline. Just because a given area is densely filled with villages, for example, doesn't mean that every village interacted with every other village on a uniform basis. Indigenous Americans are just as capable of peace and war as any other uselessly continent-wide grouping of people, and so a village could have peaceful relations with some villages here, hostile relations with villages over there, and no relationships with the villages in between. Given that sort of mosaic of political and diplomatic connections, diseases could not spread evenly at a uniform pace, but followed established social connections that didn't just extend to like every single human within a five-mile radius of your corporeal form. In addition, pre-contact America was not some disease-free paradise, and indigenous cultures everywhere developed practices for treating the sick which sometimes included quarantines within a ritual spiritual context. To claim a whole continent's worth of cultures were all defenseless against these new disease epidemics is an insulting simplification of indigenous medicinal practices and social constructs. And lastly, we come to the factor of recovery. Once an epidemic hits a person, their body has two basic outcomes. Their immune system develops an effective response and successfully fights off the disease, or it doesn't, and they die. Once an epidemic has forced that trial on all of the animal or human bodies available in a given place, then that epidemic has pretty much run its course. Having overcome such a tribulation, indigenous survivors would once again be free to recoalesce and resume the social and material cultures that had been able to sustain them for hundreds if not thousands of years prior, and eventually indigenous populations can recover, if left to their own devices. But the colonizers didn't leave them to their own devices. Instead, colonizing powers murdered, dislocated, starved, mutilated, enslaved, raped, trafficked, and utterly brutalized indigenous Americans as the natural manifestation of the colonizer's white supremacist mindset, the underlying ideology of the entire colonial project. Simply put, it becomes much more difficult to fight off a virus or infectious disease when you are demoralized, malnourished, far away from your home, and haunted by memories of violence inflicted on your people. To chalk up this person's resulting death as an outcome of, as an, outcome of an epidemic obscures the many exacerbating factors and direct harm that North American colonization inflicted on the continent's native inhabitants. Ultimately, the virgin soil thesis somehow both overstates the intensity and rapidity of indigenous depopulation from disease and understates the culpability of the more direct and violent forms of colonialism in the Americas. So then, what about the possibility of old world epidemics hitting indigenous California as a result of the first 60 years of intermittent contact with Spanish ships and their crews. One of the most densely populated areas of the state, the Santa Barbara Channel home of the Chumash speakers, was also the site of many contacts and meetings between Spanish sailors and Chumash villagers. Those Spaniards also made contact with indigenous peoples around Monterey Bay and San Diego Harbor, the highly populous and socially interconnected Chumash village network 
rendered them particularly susceptible to spread of the crowd diseases, smallpox, influenza, and measles. But here we should remember the difference between simply being exposed to a disease versus actually being contagious with it. Influenza, for example, would infect and run its course throughout the entire crew of a ship before that ship would be even be able to make it within sight of a Chumash to mole rower. Thanks to the time it took to sail against the south flowing California current from Mexico's western ports. The surviving Spanish sailors, now immune to the flu virus that had hitched a ride on their ship, would no longer be able to pass the flu virus along to indigenous people that they happened to encounter, thus sparing the natives from a potentially catastrophic epidemic. Professors Lightfoot and Simmons argue that what epidemics did take place in these early decades were likely short, infrequent, and not widespread, with the two most plausible epidemic diseases remaining smallpox and various animal vectors harbored by old-world pigs and horses kept on board Spanish vessels. Aside from direct contact with Spanish expeditionaries, old-world epidemics could also reach indigenous Californians via the native trade routes to the east and down into the Baja Peninsula, though this idea relies more on virgin soil thesis assumptions about old world's diseases spreading ahead of sustained contact with colonizers. If the demographic consequences of epidemics of diseases like smallpox have been overstated, then the consequences of another category of disease remains understated, that of sexually transmitted infections. First-hand accounts of colonizer expeditions mention instances when indigenous Californians stayed overnight on board Spanish ships, including a female chieftain who spent the night with a Spanish captain. When Vizcaino sailed into the Santa Barbara Channel in 1603, he was greeted by a Chumash Capitan, who climbed aboard his ship from a tamal while still at sea, and attempted to coax the Spaniards into visiting his village by offering 10 indigenous women to each Spanish crew member to, quote, serve and entertain them, unquote. Furthering this point, anthropologists John Erlinson and Kevin Bartoy argue that, quote, during extended stays of days, weeks, or months among the native peoples of the California coast, with Spanish crew members possessing exotic items prized by the natives, numerous forced or consensual sexual encounters almost certainly occurred. Unquote. Whether the sex was consented to or not, it could likely result in the spread of syphilis, a pretty common affliction among 16th century mariners and soldiers. Without modern treatment techniques, syphilis could end up permanently ending a person's ability to have children. If syphilis was able to spread widely enough within a given indigenous community, even after the departure of the Spaniards, then that entire village or, or cultural group could have difficulty in demographically reproducing itself. One result of widespread syphilis infection could then be the wholesale abandonment of village sites, as refugees and the luckily unafflicted simply give up on their old homes and attempt to assimilate into lesser affected communities nearby. Having examined ecological shifts and the possibility of epidemic disease spread as midterm consequences of contact, we shift now to the long-term consequence. Indigenous Californians were on the radar of Catholic missionaries. 
The spread of Catholicism was a core tenet of Spanish colonial administration up and down the Americas. Though the missionaries often existed in an uneasy, tension-filled partnership with secular and military authorities. Nonetheless, by the end of the first century of Spanish occupation in the Americas, the proselytizing missions existed as one of the three pillars of New Spain's frontier culture, with the other two being military garrisons called presidios and civilian towns called pueblos. For the rest of this episode, we're going to focus on the missions, and I'll come back around to address presidios and pueblos once they actually get built within the modern state lines. Christian Spaniards, unaffected by Queen Isabella's religious bigotry, quickly moved in on these vacated lands. Though the new occupants still had to rely on a relic of medieval society to protect them from potential harm from brigands or whatever. That relic was the gallant knight, mounted on horseback, armed with a lance, in armor glittering in the Spanish sunlight, though by the late 1400s functioning more like a landlord than a hero of a romantic chivalry novel. So, in exchange for the alleged protection provided by this knight, the new inhabitants of abandoned lands would supply that knight with some fixed amount of unpaid work hours per year. This social arrangement, and eventually the lands on which it occurred, both came to be known as encomiendas. So in the first few decades after Columbus's landing on Hispaniola, Spanish colonialists just recreated the encomienda system and their new land claims in the Caribbean, forcing the indigenous Arawak and Carib peoples who lived nearby to perform labor in exchange for protection provided by Spanish colonizers. As practiced first in the Caribbean, encomienda labor was usually directed towards finding gold under brutal conditions. Acts of cruelty such as sexual assault and maiming were common on the encomiendas and empowered by a military presence acting in the name of the Spanish monarchs. Though some first-hand witnesses, who were repulsed by this condition of de facto slavery, wrote directly to Isabella and Ferdinand, urgently imploring the monarchs back in Spain to regulate the mistreatment of the natives in the Americas. Indeed, as the centuries passed, multiple attempts at regulation of the encomienda system would be issued from Madrid, though enforcement of these decrees from the faraway capital was uneven at best, and brutal working conditions on the encomiendas all over Spanish America would persist for hundreds of years. Those Spaniards who opposed the labor exploitation of the encomienda system soon began to seek out alternatives. Spanish colonial authorities could not abide indigenous peoples simply living as they had prior to contact, and by this point the spread of epidemic diseases was accelerating indigenous population loss on the Caribbean islands. The only way to guarantee a ready and accessible pool of indigenous labor that wasn't on an encomienda was then to have the natives concentrated into two types of settlements. Congregaciones, or Congregations of Indigenous Americans into Settled Towns, and Reducciones, or Reducing Indigenous Americans into Compact Encampments. For the proselytizer friars among the Augustinians, the Franciscans, the Dominicans, and the Jesuits, the Congregaciones and Reducciones provided excellent opportunities to spread the Catholic Christian faith to these indigenous unbelievers who were now conveniently gathered into towns and encampments. In the north of New Spain, congregations and reductions of indigenous peoples 
that were overtly oriented towards religious education and conversion to Christianity were soon being referred to as missions. By the 1580s, with Spain now in firm control of the Valley of Mexico and the Caribbean islands, colonial authorities understood that they did not have the manpower to settle their vast frontiers to the north with exclusively European-born Spanish colonists. A series of skirmishes and low-grade wars with bands of indigenous raiders preying on silver-bearing caravans only heightened the need for a new strategy for engaging with the indigenous peoples on the northern border. As a cheaper alternative to permanent frontier warfare, colonial policymakers looked to a plan for assimilating Native American peoples into Spanish Catholic society. For New Spain's northern frontiers, the missions would become primary vehicles for the assimilation process. As eminent California historian Kevin Starr describes, quote, Mission theory had as its goal the evangelization of Native Americans and their education in religion and the manual arts during a period of residency and transitioning in a mission, leading eventually to their introduction into secular society as gente de razón, which is to say people of reason, baptized Catholics and useful citizens, unquote. With this granting of access into European society, Spanish missionaries also attempted to destroy any facet of native cultures or lifestyles that could stand in the way of indigenous conversion to Catholicism. Despite the friars' missionary zeal, there were practical limits to the destruction of indigenous cultures when those plans tried to be put to use, and the black-robed Jesuits in particular adopted a strategy of enculturation wherein they would attempt to graft Christianity onto pre-existing cultural beliefs. Like saying to the natives, Oh yeah, your corn mother goddess? No, you had it almost right. We're just going to call her the Virgin Mary now and congregate every Sunday for Mass. Deal? In more recent times, apologists for Spanish colonialism will often contrast this assimilating attitude to the English whose colonists had no intention of assimilating or even abiding the existence of indigenous peoples in their colonial land claims. The original plan was that after a 10-year period of residency and education of local indigenous peoples, the mission lands would be broken up into individual plots and redistributed back to those newly quote-unquote civilized natives, while the religious duties to the mission friars would be passed over to the parish priests of the local diocese. However, the plan rarely, if ever, was carried out this way for various and mostly racist reasons. For one, the Padres provided little training on governmental or political self-sufficiency, preferring instead to emphasize spiritual teachings over the worldly matters of state administration. On a more basic level, many friars upheld racist assumptions that their indigenous converts to Christianity, also known as neophytes, were straight up incapable of successfully reproducing European cultural standards. The education thus provided by the Padres often consisted of mere rote recitation of religious phrases and passages, while the high level of control the missionaries pressed on the everyday lives of the neophytes resulted more in a feeling of captivity within a prison rather than education and training in a college-like atmosphere. The missions themselves would resemble whole agricultural towns more than just parish churches. 
mission outposts, following years of forced indigenous labor on construction, could become fully equipped with dormitories, storage spaces, offices, shops, and of course the actual church itself. In the immediate vicinity of the mission buildings, fields were cultivated into gardens, orchards, and vineyards bounded by walls of prickly pear cacti, while further out, herds of cattle grazed and stampeded on mission-owned ranchos. These were the lands that would have been redistributed out to the neophytes had the 10-year timeline ever actually been followed through. The northward expansion of Catholic missions out from central Mexico followed along three major courses, an eastern flank extending along the Gulf Coast and fanning outward into Texas, a central flank extending into the Mesa Central and eventually reaching New Mexico along the upper Rio Grande, and a western flank that extended along the west side of the Sierra Madre Occidental and into the Sinaloa and Sonora coastlines and eventually into Arizona and California. The city of Culiacan was founded on this western route in 1531, and this was also the pathway taken by Coronado in 1540 while heading north to meet with Alarcón at the Colorado River. While missionaries from the Franciscan order took the lead in interior areas and north up to New Mexico, the Jesuits focused their missionary efforts on the western flank. In 1591, the governor of Nueva Vizcaya dispatched the Je Jesuit missionaries Gonzalo de Tapia and Martin Perez to Sinaloa with orders to establish missions and convert indigenous peoples in that region. The two black-robed Jesuits first arrived at the small village of San Felipe, located on the Sinaloa River as it flows from the western slopes of the Sierra Madre Occidental down to the Pacific Ocean. North of Culiacan, there are in fact five major rivers that flow towards the Pacific coast, including the Sinaloa, and each of these rivers was fed by a valley-shaped watershed that drained surface waters and concentrated them into rivers on the valley floor. While first establishing a headquarters on the Sinaloa River, the Jesuits' missionizing activity would come to expand north on a watershed-by-watershed watershed basis, with missions usually established somewhere near the central river of the watershed and recruitment into the mission invited to every indigenous person who lived in that basin. By 1604, the Jesuits had moved into the Fuerte River Valley, and by 1614, they were occupying the Mayo River Valley. Three years later, the Jesuits set up shop in the Yaqui River Valley, and in 1638, the Padres were able to reach the Sonora River Valley. Decades later, a 1678 report written to Spanish colonial authorities revealed that over 600 Spanish families and, quote, many mestizos, unquote, were present in Sinaloa, as well as 50 settled villages that were home to over 20,000 neophyte converts. Having consolidated their hold on the mainland's Pacific shore, the Jesuits turns to the landmass on the other side of the Sea of Cortez that many still assumes to be an island, California. Two Jesuits in particular would be responsible for initiating the missionary efforts in Baja, Juan Maria de Salvatierra and Eusebio Francisco Quino. Quino had had prior experience establishing missions along the Sonora and Gila River watersheds in southern Arizona, as well as undertaking mapping expeditions around the mouth of the Colorado River. That proved once and for all that Baja California was indeed a peninsula. 
Crucially, Kino's expeditions proved that the coastal harbors where Vizcaino had made landfall, that of San Diego and Monterey, could also be accessible from land via that western route along the Sinaloa and Sonora coastlines. In the 1690s, Kino was joined by Salvatierra, and in 1697, they established the first permanent mission settlement on the Baja Peninsula at Laredo. On Baja's east coast, about a quarter of the way up from the long, skinny peninsula's southern end. While Kino possessed a keen mind for geography, Salvatierra was a savvy political operator. In negotiations with Spanish civil colonial officials for authorization to establish the Baja missions, Salvatierra guaranteed Jesuit control over the appointment and dismissal of civil officials and military officers. In exchange for the Jesuits basically paying for everything, including the salaries of the soldiers who garrisoned the missions. Missionary culture within the order of the Jesuits in particular emphasized their role as protectors of indigenous people from the more violent aspects of Spanish colonialism, and Salvatierra assured that in Baja, the Jesuits would retain religious and financial authority over the local soldiers. However tenuous their partnership may be, the truth is, that both the missionaries and the garrisoned soldiers needed each other. Every mission was garrisoned by at least a dozen soldiers, ostensibly there to provide a defense from external threats, but more commonly used as an internal police force. Spanish soldiers were used to prevent indigenous resistance and uprisings within the missions, and also pursued and recaptured neophytes who had escaped from the mission grounds. The Padres commonly fretted about indigenous people stealing food from mission stockpiles and the indigenous cultural lax attitudes towards sex, and so the soldiers also functioned as deterrents to these alleged moral shortcomings on the part of the neophyte converts. Though the Jesuits comforted themselves in that indigenous labor on the missions tended to be generally less brutal than labor in a typical Mexican silver mine, the labor was unquestionably coerced at the points of Spanish muskets. As the Baja mission spread outward from Laredo in the early 1700s, the Jesuits encountered mass violent resistance from the indigenous Pericu speakers, who inhabited the southern reaches of the Baja Peninsula. In response to a Jesuit prohibition against Pericu shamans taking multiple wives, the Pericu launched a rebellion in the autumn of 1734. In September, they attacked the Spanish settlement at La Paz and killed a single colonial soldier. In October, two priests were killed after assaults at Mission San Jose del Cabo and Mission Santiago. By November, even though Spanish authorities had finally managed to scramble a small military response at La Paz, every southern mission outside of Dolores was burned and destroyed. Sigismundo Taraval, a Jesuit priest who was evacuated by soldiers from Mission Todos Santos, wrote of his observations of a final petty coup assault on the Spanish defensive position at the burnt-out husk of the La Paz mission. Though the Spanish relief force only numbered around 20 men, they were joined by indigenous allies from the peninsula, the Cayahue speakers. Though Father Tadaval reports that some Spanish soldiers' suspicion of the Callejue's ultimate loyalties undermined Spanish morale over the weeks-long course of this little mini-siege at La Paz. Two weeks after the first exchange of arrows, 
the Kayahue and other allied indigenous warriors initiated a second confrontation against a large petty coup force descending down upon them. Despite being outnumbered and ignoring multiple commands from Spanish officers to retreat, the indigenous allies began to gain momentum over the rebel force, and they pressed their advantage against the petty coup warriors. After several rounds of gaining a step of territory to only fall behind two steps, the petty coup broke off their attack and retreated back into the countryside. Despite many injuries, some serious enough to include an arrow through the jawbone, Father Taraval reports that no Spanish soldier died, though he neglects to say how many indigenous people on either side were killed during the conflict. The 1734 Petty Coup Rebellion only proved to be a temporary setback against the missionizing cause, rather than ending it completely. Between 1697 and 1768, the Jesuits managed to establish 19 missions in the Baja Peninsula, in which up to 12,000 indigenous people in total were baptized into the Roman Catholic Church during that 70-year time span. In a dark preview of events to come further north, the presence of the Jesuit missions in Baja is strongly correlated with, if not directly responsible for, massive indigenous population losses. Indeed, the native population of the Baja Peninsula was cut in half, from 6,000 in the year 1700 to 3,000 in the year 1752. By 1768, though, the political tides in Madrid were turning against the Jesuits. So next episode, we'll see how the rug gets pulled right out from under their black robes, leaving the Order of St. Francis to take the lead in establishing missions at San Diego Harbor and all points further north, here on A History of California.